All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour uh, for making this show economically viable. Uh, Our sponsors uh, for the second hour this week are Prophecy Platinum, Avino Silver and Gold Mines, and Millrock Resources. Well, I'm really happy to have with me once again John Williams. Uh, John has been on this show several times before. Uh, John received his degree in economics, a bachelor's degree, uh, voted, uh, graduated cum laude from Dartmouth College in 1971, and he was uh, awarded an MBA from Dartmouth, same as Tuck School of Business Administration in 1972, where he was named an Edward Tuck Scholar. And during his career as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. For more than 25 years, he has uh, been a private consulting economist, again, independent, as Gary Schilling is, very uh, very independent. Uh, out of necessity, he became a specialist in government economic reporting. Uh, and he learned that virtually all economic stats quoted by the United States government are spun using optimistic assumptions that uh, often bear little reality uh, to uh, reality, but to make politicians look good and put money in the pockets of Wall Street. John writes, uh, the shadow government statistics, it's an excellent, excellent newsletter in terms of helping us understand the world as it is, as opposed to the world that the politicians want to think it, uh, want us to think it is. And he has been recognized by the mainstream media where he has been quoted in uh, publications like the New York Times and Investors Business Daily and, and elsewhere. Though I might just add, <clears throat> excuse me, add that probably, um, probably John does not get anywhere near the coverage that he deserves in the mainstream media for some of the same reasons that Gary Schilling was talking about. Uh, the need to sell the products is what really drives so much of the content that we are that we get uh, in the mainstream media. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I think that the Internet is so valuable now. And let's just hope and let's be active in trying to keep the Internet open and alive and, and free because if the same people get control of the Internet who own the mainstream media, then I think uh, the ability to talk to people like John uh, and uh, even Gary Schilling, who's probably arguably a more mainstream guy than, than, John, uh, than John Williams, well, if we lose that, then it's a big setback, I think, in terms of freedom. What this radio show is all about is trying to understand what the what is really going on and what are the causes for what's really going on. We try to get underneath, and that's why I'm really pleased, again, uh, to have John Williams with us. Thanks again for joining me, John. Uh, Jay, thank you for having me. Just one quick correction there to the otherwise fine introduction. I do not have a doctorate. 
Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I uh, well, I didn't know I said you did, but uh, you have an MBA from Dart. Yes, yes, I do, and my hearing's terrible, and I may have, I may have misunderstood what you said. Okay. Well, uh, listen, I think I know about that hearing issue too. I'm 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 no spring chicken, and uh, I I think sometimes my wife. Maybe it's just that I've been married so long, and my wife. Maybe I don't want to hear what she has to say. I don't know. But anyway, let's get on uh, with the issue. Uh, we just heard from Dr. Schilling, and he was telling us, well, he thinks that you know we're, we're in a major credit deleveraging process uh, that he thinks will last for another five to seven years, and, and he believes that we're going to see price declines, overall price declines of 2 to 3% a year. I know in speaking with you in the past, and I'm, unless you've changed radically, you believe uh, that a crashing dollar will lead to much higher prices. Uh, do you believe that we are in a period of deleveraging still? Oh, well, certainly we are in the, in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what you have to consider here is that you had a, uh, an extraordinary financial crisis um, back in 2007-2008, uh, um, we're following the collapse of Lehman. The system indeed was on the brink of collapse. There was no kidding about uh, the comments um, out of the, the, the Fed or the Treasury. Uh, had the actions that were uh, that were then being trying to they were trying to sell in terms of the tarp and such. Had those actions not been taken, uh, they would have had a collapse. What they showed at that point in time, very simply, that. Uh, what was it? They would they would uh, guarantee, they would spend, they would lend whatever money they had to create to keep the system from collapsing. Mm-hmm. This was this, this was not theoretical. That yeah. you were at the brink of, of collapse here, and um, since then, um, all, all that has been accomplished basically is to push the problem a little bit into the future. The banking system was insolvent then; it's still insolvent now. At least that's my contention. Uh, the systemic solvency crisis has not, not improved much at all. In fact, I think you're going to see it intensifying again in, in the near future, which will probably trigger QE3 or whatever um, uh, Mr. Bernanke will call it. The actions by the Fed in the way of easing generally been aimed more at propping the, uh, the banking system than, than helping the economy. There's very little that they, they can do to, to help the economy. Despite all the money that's been spent, um, there's been no real economic recovery. Um, you look at the uh, uh, popularly followed uh, GDP measure, and just look at a plot of that. Um, this is what the, the government's reporting. Mm-hmm. It, it shows the economy uh, hitting a peak um, in uh, the fourth quarter of 2007, then it's uh, falling off and, and starts turning up again in uh, uh, the second quarter of 2009, that was declared the end of the end of the recession, and and now, if you believe the government's reporting, uh, the economy has more than fully recovered where it was before the recession. The problem is the GDP numbers are absolutely worthless. You will not find any major economic series that is showing um, a, a recovery of, of of any magnitude where the numbers have uh, gotten back to where they were before the. Uh, Recession. In fact, uh, of the broadest uh, measures out there, probably payroll employment 
despite all the problems I have with the monthly numbers in terms of quality, is, is probably one of your better indicators. Mm-hmm. And right now it is showing, um, after all the good news of last week and the benchmark provisions of last week, that um, uh, payrolls are below where they were um, 11 years ago, going wow. into the 2001 recession, let mm-hmm. alone the uh, official 2007 recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, no growth in uh, payrolls over uh, 11 years, and the population's uh, grown 11% in that same time frame. There's a major problem here. We're not seeing any kind of economic recovery. You had a plunge in activity and basically uh, a lot of bottom bouncing. After that, uh, you had a similar pattern, for example, in housing starts. Uh, the housing market started to fall off in 2006, which helped to trigger the crisis in 2007, but the, the recession really started back in 2006. Economy plunged its bottom bouncing down 75% from where it was um, at its uh, 2006 peak. If you look at consumer confidence, you'll see a, a similar pattern, a plunge, bottom bouncing where levels uh, uh, generally never seen before, only at the depths of the, of the worst recessions. Mm-hmm. Um, those are numbers that are uh, published by a variety of, 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 of sources, um, but the thing they have in common is that there's no adjustment there for inflation. Mm-hmm. Those are just numbers that measure physical volume or, 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 or some index that, that's not affected by prices. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I, I mention that is that uh, other series, such as the GDP in particular, uh, retail sales, even adjusted by the government CPI, industrial production, which is published by the, uh, uh, by the Federal Reserve, all have uh, some... Uh, under understatement of inflation that's been used in, in, in deflating them. And if you use uh, too low a rate of inflation when you adjust business activity, the reporting of business activity, uh, you end up with overstated growth. If you mm-hmm. correct for the inflation uh, overstatement, what you'll find is that the GDP, the retail sales, and industrial production also are showing the same patterns as, uh, uh, as the payrolls, as the housing. Uh, that is a sharp plunge in activity and bottom bouncing. Mm-hmm. Um, what, we're, we're in a structural downturn, one that uh, has, has no easy resolution. I mean, there are things that can be done, and I, I, I think seven years, uh, Dr. Sh- I think said Dr. Schilling had indicated uh, for, for further problems here. That, that's probably minimal before you're going to see a, a, a turnaround here. Mm-hmm. But if there's going to be a turnaround, the system either will become self-writing or the government has to shift a lot of policies that currently are are, are making the um, employment situation very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well you, this you, all this all comes back to inflation, and I know it uh, seems sort of funny you talk about a weak economy and inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think that uh, you know you have a weak economy, demand's down, certainly inflation will be down. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case, and in fact, it's often. Uh, to the contrary, as as we've seen recently. Mm-hmm. Um, keep in mind now that as of the crisis back in 2008, there's a great fear of a uh, 1930s-style recession, a deflationary collapse. Mm-hmm. Back in 2002, the um, Mr. Bernanke was a uh, Federal Reserve governor, and he, he gave his famous helicopter speech explaining how the Fed could act to uh, uh, prevent deflation. Um, and very simply, the uh, the point he made was that the Fed, 
in conjunction with the, uh, um, the, 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 the sovereign state, could debase the dollar any time it wanted to. Mm-hmm. And in that process, cre- create inflation. Uh, Mr. Bernanke took it beyond the theoretical um, when he went introduced quantitative easing too, uh, where he started uh, effectively fully monetizing uh, U.S. Treasury debt issuance. Uh, that was for the period of time of QE2. Uh, the Fed bought more in the way of um, uh, Treasuries than the, than the Treasury issued. The foreign markets responded by a sell-off in the dollar. Uh, started when he started jawboning on on QE2, and that's something else he had indicated. You know, just by talking about it, he could create inflation. Well, what happened was uh, the, the dollar tanked, and in the process, the lower the, the decline in the dollar uh, spiked oil prices. Mm-hmm. The higher oil prices led to higher gasoline prices and, and higher inflation in the United States. I mean, we're still feeling the effects of it in the, in the CPI, mm-hmm. um, and it's. Uh, um, but it's not because of strong demand for gasoline or oil. It's, it's due to uh, bad monetary policy um, and an inflation in commodity prices that, again, had nothing to do with U.S. demand. Mm-hmm. Inflation that we've seen recently um, has, has been despite uh, the ongoing contraction in economic activity. Mm-hmm. Simply because of a weakening or a debasing of the currency. Is that, is that your view? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Simply because of a weakness in the currency or a debasing of the dollar. That's, that's your view. That's why the oil prices are higher. Yes. That's, uh, there's an 80% correlation there. There are, other, there are other factors that obviously affect oil, but um, beyond um, scares in the Middle East or whatever, wherever oil prices are, if you hit the dollar high, hard, you're going to spike oil prices. Mm-hmm. That uh, that's, that, that, that's, uh, happens almost every time. Mm-hmm. But what's here is particularly frightening because prior to this um, crisis in, in 2007-2008, the U.S. had already um, doomed itself, and I don't like to use that term because I'm not a gloom and doom guy. I really am an optimist at heart. Um, but the U.S. had uh, set itself up for hyperinflation. Uh, if you go back to the Nixon era. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur Burns was then uh, a Fed chairman, and he very much promoted uh, two, two basic policies that were followed by Mr. Greenspan in terms of uh, how you, how you uh, can address a severe economic um, or financial crises. Uh, very simply, you ignore the dollar, you ignore the deficit. They don't mean anything in terms of, of votes. And that, those are policies that have been pursued over time. Debt expansion was built upon debt expansion, and um, we were set up for the uh, the, the, the current crisis. Um, also, back in the, in the 70s, um, what were then the Big Ten accounting firms got together with with Congress and said, "Hey, look, fellows, you you're running the largest business on the face of the planet. You, you should have uh, um, you know, accounting." Standards mm-hmm. and reporting similar to, to what a large corporation would have. Mm-hmm. Thirty years later, um, through an extensive process, uh, the government started publishing um, financial statements based on generally accepted accounting principles. Mm-hmm. The Treasury publishes it each December. doesn't get much press. But what it will show you is that over the last um, six, seven years, 
including the year-to-year change in unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Net present value of that. All that means is that's uh, the net present value is what you need in hand today to cover those expenses in the future, allowing for the value of, 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 of money. And um, what has happened is that we have seen fairly consistently a $5 trillion per year deficit. Mm-hmm. That's with a T, not a B. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's, uh, that's beyond containment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you could... Uh, you can't raise taxes enough. You could raise, uh, take 100% of everyone's uh, wages and salaries. You wouldn't have enough to put yourself into surplus. Right. Uh, you could cut every penny of government spending except for Social Security and Medicare. You'd still be in deficit. No. If the system were to be balanced, it has to involve a, a severe slashing of the social programs, but there's no political will in Washington to do that. We saw mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Back in uh, July and, uh, and August with the budget uh, deficit negotiations at the time. Mm-hmm. What happened as, as uh, the Congress, uh, the, those controlling the Congress and the White House showed that uh, there was no political will to address the long-term insolvency of the U.S. government, and I am talking uh, what would qualify as insolvency. Right. You have, on top of the federal debt, uh, that present value of uh, government uh, obligations, that, that take, takes a total up to over $80 trillion. Mm-hmm. No way that can ever ever be covered. But when the yep. rest of the world saw the U.S. Um, saying, hey, we're, we're not, we're not going to uh, address this, the dollar plummeted, plummeted mm-hmm. against the dollar, plummeted against the Swiss franc. And then you had various interventions in the markets. Uh, the Swiss went to effectively tie itself, tie the franc to the... Uh, uh, euro as a euro collapsed, mm-hmm. and and the euro uh, that, that 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 I think is something of a foil. There are significant problems, obviously, in in the euro area, but the problem in the U.S. is much larger. It's much more significant, and every time uh, where you you've seen uh, uh, an intensified selling of the dollar, which has threatened the domestic uh, markets, the there all of a sudden comes a big pressure to target the euro and. And uh, the euro, in many ways, acted as a foil for the dollar. The euro situation will get resolved. Um, again, the uh, powers that be will do everything in in their power to prevent a systemic collapse mm-hmm. of the euro. They can they, they can do that. I think it, I think they can do it one one more time. Uh, they can do it so long as the markets will accept their actions. But the cost to that, and the cost to what they did in in uh, uh, 2008, the, the costs there are, are in inflation. Mm-hmm. But getting getting back to the hyperinflation and the uh, basic insolvency of the government, uh, the problem is it uh, just left its own devices without the intervening financial crisis. Um, you would have seen the fiscal circumstance uh, hit crisis level by by 2018. Um, at that point in time, Social Security was uh, not going to be able to cover itself. Um, it would be a net uh, uh, user of funds as opposed to supplier of funds in, in, the, uh, in, in the government's coffers. Um, and you get to a point where the government has to pay obligations it can't cover either with taxes or, or borrowings. Generally what it does is it, it prints the money. Mm-hmm. It prints the money to ca- cover its obligations, and 
even Mr. Bernanke uses that term, print, printing the money still. The, the effect is they, cre- they create the money. Yeah. It becomes inflationary, hyperinflationary. John, but let because me Because of inter- the crisis, l- let me the actions you, taken to John. keep the system from collapsing. I mean, again, we're talking here systemic collapse. We're not talking about a little bump, bump in, the, um, in, in, in the economy. John, I'd like to interrupt um, That's you. accelerated the process. John, I'd like um, to interrupt you. The, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a hyperinflation heading uh, now uh, outside timing of 2014. And uh, we all already may be seeing, well, in fact, we have seen certain things happen now, which are prerequisites for um, moving into that hyperinflation scenario. Initially, I believe what we're going to see it is, is in the dollar. You'll see a, a hyper, um, I mean, you'll see a, you'll see a massive uh, sell-off of the dollar, um, dumping of uh, dollar-denominated paper assets, the Fed's going to have to absorb those or let the system collapse. They'll, they'll absorb it, see heavy monetization of the debt, and that's when you're going to start to see a surge in the in, in the money supply. I, I still track the government's, uh, what used to be the government's M3 measure. Um, the, the bigger measure, bigger components of it are, are, are still largely published by the Fed. And uh, we're now starting to see some pickup in, in annual growth in M3. That just happened the last month or two. So that, that's beginning to come into play here. But the, the, the proximal trigger for the crisis ahead, I believe, will be selling in the dollar. Again, people, uh, we've, already, we've already reached the point where global confidence largely has been destroyed in the dollar. You saw earlier in 2001 where the dollar lost its safe haven status. Um, the the uh, so-called uh, uh, Arab Spring and the, the violence in uh, North Africa and the Middle East those were times when normally you'd see flight to the U.S. dollar for safety. The flight to safety at that time was to the Swiss franc and gold. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that was following uh, QE2. All right, the John. Fed and the Fed and the federal government have succeeded in, in killing global confidence in the dollar. That All had right, to John. happen before you could have a hyperinflation. All right. um, one of the next things to follow would be uh, the dollar's loss of reserve status. Um, but that's that, that hasn't happened yet. You, you know there are movements afoot. We'll, we'll see how that how that breaks. Um, but the uh, point is here. I can't time it precisely. Um, I'm, I'm uh, comfortable with my forecast of 2014 as the outside uh, time frame on it. The crisis with the dollar could break tonight. I I, I, I can't re- refine that much much uh, beyond that. The problem is that when this hits, you don't want to be in the dollar. Yeah. You don't want to be in a circumstance where you're, um, uh, you've got, got the bulk of your assets in, 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 in uh, a paper dollar assets. Yeah. You, need, um, you need to look at uh, preserving um, your wealth and assets, uh, maintaining some liquidity, writing out it, uh, what's going to be a terrible uh, financial storm. And... Uh, uh, the, the precious metals, uh, gold in particular, are um, a primary a primary hedges there. Um, I, I prefer physical gold. Um, and you look at the uh, uh, stronger currencies; they'll also be hedges. The Swiss franc's not going to remain tied to the uh, uh, euro for a long period of time. Here, it'll, it'll break free and regain its uh, full full relative value. At least I, I expect that will happen. 
Um, I like the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar um, as alternatives to the U.S. dollar. Um, okay, John, I'd like to ask you a question here, if I could. Yes, John? Sam. John, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, um, Dr. Schilling mentioned that uh, he made this statement. He says, we don't print money. We put money into the reserves, into the system. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments on the deflation side is that, you know, like the 1930s, it's pushing on a string. It's not, we're not getting the demand side of the economy activated. Now, I can see where, you know, you're, you're, uh, the need for the government to send huge checks to individuals to put money in the hands of the masses could stimulate inflation, or I could see if the dollar crashed, I would agree with you, and I'm looking at a 71.38 on the dollar index as a very key level. If we were to go below that level, technically it seems to me it could be lights out for the dollar, and then all that you're saying could happen. And and we know from, from history that when hyperinflation happens, it happens very rapidly. On the other hand, um, you know, it seems to me that when the system delevers, there is the opposite effect that takes place. But, but what I'm having a problem seeing is if we don't print money and put it in the hands of the masses, but we simply pump money into the system to allow the banks to have all this to be flush with cash, a shilling was pointing out that huge amounts of reserves beyond what is reserve required is not going anywhere. What well, I mean, and, and indeed, that? that's why you, uh, the, the funds that were pumped into the banking system um, uh, did not uh, create a big inflation. Um, keep in mind, uh, and I know we don't we don't have too much time left here. No, uh, that because of the methodological changes uh, made by the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the insistence of Congress, that um, the consumer price index on the, the way most people think it's measured um, is certainly several percentage points higher than what the government is 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 reporting, which means you never. Really had a you know a two percent deflation that we saw a couple of years ago, and uh, anyone you know looking at some near term uh, deflation same magnitude you're probably at a realistic level uh, still lo- looking on, uh, at the upside. But the uh, when the Fed monetizes the, the Treasury debt, um, that goes directly into the hands hands of consumers. Uh, keep in mind that the uh, keep in mind that the uh, uh, the economy, the weaker, the weaker economy, lack of recovering economy means, means that the budget deficits are going to be much worse than expected. Treasury funding needs are going to be much worse than expected. Uh, the government, the, the Fed's going to be pumping a lot of money into the system, trying to prop up the banks. Um, at the same time, you're going to find the government, uh, despite political uh, protestations to the contrary, uh, pumping out a lot more money in, in, in the way of uh, um, stimulus efforts, but unable to raise the funds other than through the Fed borrowing. Um, that that is money creation that that gets paid out to the people receiving the money from the government, and the banks will start to lend more here. But you will also see that as these funds come in from abroad, the Fed buying that that there, there'll be a general flight from the dollar. People will not want to hold it, and and part of the equation on the, on the monitor, monetarist side is velocity. How quickly does the money supply turn over? There's some evidence that we're seeing an increase in velocity now because the average American has no option whatsoever for a safe return on his money uh, that beats the government's own inflation rate. So he does better buying goods. People don't want to hold the currency in it, and it's that 
it's a whole confluence of factors that build together sure. that will give you the the, the, the hyperinflation. Um, but but the key to it will be the sell-off in the dollar. That will start to trigger the uh, um, the, the movements and all the other factors. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it is a complex subject. I notice. Uh, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but I notice uh, one of the issues, one of the bright spots, seemingly, is the profit picture, the corporate profit picture. Uh, the, the banks, of course, are flush with cash. They're being subsidized with all these policies. I think the Federal Reserve is actually created in order to uh, to really bail out and to help the banks and not the, not the people. But we're seeing corporations, corporate profits are very strong these days, aren't they, John? And isn't that a, isn't that a well, bullish sign for the economy? I, 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 again, you... Um Nice thing about being a private corporation is you have all sorts of flexibilities as to how you uh, report your results, and you can you, you can make uh, short-term changes that actually can cut your business to the bone and, and damage you down the road. I, I mean, it, uh, throughout all that's been happening here, it's, uh, massive layoffs have been viewed as a positive by uh, stockholders um, as, as a way of cost-cutting. Uh, Again, you get uh, comparisons against very weak periods the, the, the year before. Uh, a lot of hope here for an economic recovery, but there's no economic recovery. Right. I mean, yes, the, 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 the numbers are stronger, <coughs> but I wouldn't read much into that. And you have a, a circumstance, again, that if the, uh, the dollar is going to be under heavy selling pressure, uh, you do a lot better in being outside the dollar. I mean, my right. goodness, the gold is... Uh, Outperformed uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, uh, December 31st over December 31st, I think, for the eight the last uh, eight years straight. Right, and that's not because uh, uh, that's because people have been sensing what's going on here. They know there's a problem. Good sense uh, not to be in the dollar not to be in the dollar asset. Well, there's no question about that, John. Unfortunately, we are time. We're out of time right now. Uh, I, I'm thankful to you for coming on and sharing your views with our listeners. It's certainly, uh, uh, certainly very, very interesting, uh, this discussion, this whole inflation, deflation discussion. Of course, a lot of it does have to do with psychology. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned, uh, you know, velocity of money. Uh, people decide that they've got to get rid of their dollars. Uh, it, it is a, a tug of war, I think, between inflation, deflation, and when it breaks, Either way it goes, I know you believe it's going into a hyperinflation. Dr. Schilling believes it's going to go in the other direction. Well, um, this is an issue that will remain in discussion, no doubt, until it's finally resolved. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I've got to go to, to a uh, commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be here with Amir Adnani. He's the president and CEO of Brazil Resources and also uh, involved with uh, a very interesting uranium company. We'll be right back with Amir Adnani. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project located in Arizona is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Amir Adnani. Uh, Amir Adnani uh, is the president and CEO of Brazil Resources. Uh, that's a company which is a sponsor to this show. Uh, and also, he, uh, he is uh, the CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. We've talked to Amir before on the show concerning that company. It's actually the, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Amir, but it's the first company in, in recent years, at least, that has started up a uranium production uh, facility in the United States. Is that right? Jay, first one in five years. First one in five years. Okay, well, we'll get. I want to just briefly uh, talk a little bit about uh, Brazil Resources, if you want to just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about it. It's a company with 39.5 million shares outstanding, trading at about a buck and a half, I believe, market cap of $59 million or so. Uh, BRI is a symbol on the Toronto Exchange. 
Uh, you can buy it down here in the United States in the over-the-counter market under the symbol um, BRIZF. Uh, have I got all that right, Amir? You've got it all right. Just so there's no confusion, my my position at BRI is just the chairman of the board. Okay. And of course, as you point out correctly, it's uh, at UEC the chairman and uh, sorry the CEO and president at UEC. But you know, with Brazil Resources, Jay, we uh, we really came out and I think have received a, a very strong endorsement and vote of confidence uh, of institutional investors. The stock has been very well supported, and we've raised uh, capital from from institutions. That gives us now a war chest, a balance sheet of about just over $10 million in cash. Uh-huh. And so the company is in a good position to not only advance the 300,000 acres of uh, property that we have under control today, but to actually be a very strong uh, uh, player in acquisition of uh, uh, opportunities out there in Brazil where uh, there's uh, really uh, a country that is uh, phenomenally rich and, and well endowed when it comes to uh, gold mineralization and this gold endowment is, uh, is something that's quite exciting. And so we hope to be able to create value by not just uh, drilling and developing our existing portfolio, which we are, but to also be able to uh, make the right acquisitions as we move forward, benefiting from the fact that we have a technical team that uh, was formerly involved with uh, running exploration for majors like Kinross, uh, we have, uh, uh, and we have the involvement of a Brazilian bank, Brazil Invest, that owns 10% of the company, which gives us very unique and proprietary access to deal flow and opportunities that we get to see in Brazil, uh, which I think is uh, quite unparalleled. So, so we're excited about the company, and it's obviously a younger company than UEC, but we, we want to replicate the success we've had at UEC here with Brazil Resources. Yeah. So I want to get to UEC. I want you to tell us, uh, update us a little bit on that. But before we go there, then, would you say that you are in sort of an acquisition mode right now? Uh, yeah, we uh, we are, deal. and I see some, I see some very good opportunities out there because I think that the market is still uh, in uh, in a state of let's say uh, distress. I think it's still difficult to raise money out there. So I think if you're a junior that has capital, you're in the driver's seat and you're able to uh, uh, develop and, and, and acquire better opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's, let's talk a little bit about Uranium Energy Corporation. It's a company, as we just noted, the first one in five years to start production, a new project in, in the United States. How are things going there? You've had one year of production under, under your belt, and I know you've put out some pretty low-cost cost estimates before you went into production. There were some people that were sort of critical. I remember talking to some people even in, in Asia or Europe that were sort of saying, eh, I didn't really quite believe your cost numbers. How, are, how is the cost of production coming out for you so far, Amir? Well, the latest quarterly production results that we put out was for the period ending October 31st, of, uh, of, so obviously just a few months ago. And by October 31st, Jay, that means that we'd been producing for about 11 months. Uh-huh. And so through to October 31st, we had produced about 200,000 pounds of uranium mm-hmm. at an average cost of $15 per pound. That's mm-hmm. one five, mm-hmm. which is in line with our ex- expectations and estimates of what uh, the uh, cost over life of mine would be. Mm-hmm. And frankly, in the uranium business today, you can mine uranium anywhere uh, south of $25 per pound, you're considered a low-cost producer, especially mm-hmm. at a time when 
conventional mining costs starts at around $35 per pound and, and uh, goes higher than that. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was, there was I, I think, always confusion or maybe lack of understanding, Jay, and still may be, about the unique features and advantages of in-situ recovery mining for right. uranium, which is what we do, which is a very different proposition than conventional mining being open pit underground, where, where conventional mining is really an earth-moving exercise. You're talking about a different type of capital requirement up front. You're talking about different type of operating costs. Uh, Institute recovery is uh, is really different. It's not an earth-moving exercise. It's solution mining, recovering or dissolving uranium in a porous sandstone environment. And so that's the reason why the cost is lower. And I think there's always been less understanding of this method, but now that UEC has a year of production under its belt with, with uh, uh, consecutive production results that help develop a baseline understanding of what this production cost really looks like, a lot of investors in the market are becoming more aware of this method. And I think over the next few years, you're going to see more ISR mines get developed because with today's uh, uranium price, conventional mining is not feasible. Right. Uh, Amir, talk to us a little bit about what your production goals are and how far fast can you ramp up there. Your operations are in Texas now. Um, you, you have some expansion plans. I think you've got a satellite operation where you have different... ISL mines that feed the processing plant, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, you've covered the story really since the beginning, Jay, so you've, you've seen us sort of go through the evolution here from taking the baby steps to now maturing into a new producer. But it, our production in South Texas is a hub-and-spoke production strategy. The hub is a central processing plant named Hobson that, that is, in fact, a uh, uh, licensed and built. It can handle uh, as much as 3 million pounds per year. So it's a very large plant. To put it in perspective, total U.S. production today is about 3.5 million pounds per year. So we control a plant that at full capacity can almost double uh, the the U.S. production today. But our plans over the next uh, year to year and a half is to um, uh, try to get the production from the current level of about 200,000 pounds to uh, uh, something closer to 800,000 to a million pounds per year. That's the, that's the short-term goal over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this hub-and-spoke strategy allows us to develop um, multiple spokes or satellite projects, deposits yeah. basically within the South Texas uranium belt, which is a fairly large area. I mean, the South Texas region, which is very rich for uranium, to put it in perspective, Jay, is equal in size to the state of Pennsylvania. It's mm. a very large area, so we can develop projects within this region and uh, send the uranium for processing to our centralized processing plant. So the five-year goal is, where, is such that we can be utilizing more, if not all, of the capacity at our plant, but the short-term goal over the next couple of years is to get up to that million-pound-per-year production rate. Okay, Amir, we only have about a minute left or so. Your cost is $15. What's the spot price for uranium now, and are you selling at spot? Uh, do you have some futures contracts? How are, how are you selling? And just to give our listeners an idea what your profit margin is per pound of uranium produced. Sure, Jay. I mean, we're, we're a 100% unhedged producer. In fact, I think we're the only uranium producer that's 100% unhedged. We have made uh, two sales uh, in the spot market, in the last uh, uh, six months, and uh, we've sold 120,000 pounds of uranium at $52 per pound, 
and that's the spot market right now. It's $52 per pound. And so we've generated over $6 million in revenue with those two sales. This is at a time when our reported cost has been $15 per pound, one five, and we've sold it at $52 per pound. Mm-hmm. So not only have we got proof of concept in terms of showing uh, 10 months of production, showing uh, competitive uh, production costs, Jay, we've also made two transactions that shows this company has truly transitioned into a new uranium producer and uh, that we can uh, establish a good margin there, even at today's spot price, which is considered to be low and inadequate, uh, we're able to point to a very uh, healthy margin. Okay, Amir, we have less than a minute left. Uh, tell us, make the case for uranium in the next few seconds. How, how is the market looking from a macro perspective now? In, in that short of a time frame, Jay, I would highlight what I think is so true, which is the reason that, that you, you would be bullish on uranium today is no different that, that, than why you'd be bullish a year ago or before Fukushima. Mm-hmm. We simply don't mine enough uranium to meet even current reactor requirements. China, India, South Korea will build enough nuclear reactors over the next 20 years, which will almost double the nuclear capacity in the world. And next year is the expiry of the HEU agreement, the oh, old uh, megatons to megawatts program dismantling yep. Russian nuclear warheads. That takes almost 24 million pounds of uranium out of the market wow. next year, and it really puts a, a pinch on the supply side. Those are the three reasons you'd be bullish a year ago. Those are the exact same three reasons I think you could be bullish for uranium today. Fantastic. Thank you, Amir. We are out of time. We could see an explosion in the uranium price next year, possibly, then, next couple of years. I think it's necessary. And remember, the price of uranium can double from where it is uh, right now, Jay, and it makes an irrelevant difference to the in bottom the line of, of a nuclear reactor because right. nuclear right. uranium is such a right. small cost for a nuclear reactor to generate power. It's irrelevant if they pay double or triple right. for a pound of uranium than what the price is today. But they need to have it because there's no substitute for right. it. Right. I got gotcha. you. We've got to run. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll have you back again sometime soon, Amir. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's discussion, inflation, deflation, and more. Don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I just have a few uh, minutes here to wrap up the discussions that we've had today. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed my discussion with Dr. Schilling. I think uh, he, he makes a very good case for the deflationary side of it. Unfortunately, uh, I guess John Williams' hearing was uh, not uh, good enough to be able to hear me uh, try to ask him some questions and to pull in some of the discussions from Dr. Schilling, one of the things that I think that Schilling, a point that he made that resonates with me is this notion that the Federal Reserve doesn't print money. It pumps money into the system. It pumps money into the banking system. And just as in the 1930s, it's the pushing on the string analogy. The money goes into the system, but the banks aren't lending it out. And I have a hard time becoming concerned about inflation until the money is in the hands of the masses. And if we were truly exercising, if, if the policymakers were really interested in Keynesian economics, they would pay attention to the notion of the propensity to consume. They would get the money in the hands of the poor and the middle classes. I'm not saying I agree with that. I want a free market. But I don't think that the policymakers really uh, really care very much about the common folks. They are really taking care of their own special interests, and that is equally true of the Democrats as it is the Republicans. And what we have is an Obama administration that is really owing to the bankers just as any Bush or any Republican administration would. This is why we, re- we really need a real change. We need a Ron Paul. We need somebody of that, somebody who's willing to take on the establishment and really turn this country back to the people and get rid of all of these policies, all of these policies that keep the market from working. Allow the markets to work on a regular basis and you don't have these major 
these major expansion contraction periods of, uh, that we've had, and, and certainly, most, most certainly, get the Federal Reserve out of there, uh, at least with the ability to increase huge amounts of money, distort the economy, and deficit spending, uh, uh, fiscal spending as well. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, as I want to say. I want to really, I'm really excited about uh, having Mexico Mike with me. I think he's going to add a lot to this show and into my newsletter. Some great ideas on the mining sector. Uh, I, I hope that you'll subscribe to our newsletter to pick up on what Mike's doing. He'll also talk about these things from time to time on the show. I want to highlight, uh, I recently interviewed three companies up in Vancouver when I was there, three uh, companies that I think have a great deal of upside potential. Uh, and you can watch these interviews if you go to investmentpitch.com. That's investmentpitch, I-N-V-E-S-T-M-E-N-T-P-I-T-C-H.com. The first one is StarCore. It trades in Toronto under the symbol SAM. And this is a company selling at 35 cents. What I like about this is it's in production with a project that Goldcorp previously had in Mexico. Uh, and, uh, and, and they are going to be, it looks like they're going to be paying, providing a pretty substantial dividend relative to that price, relative to the current share price, once they get the gold loan paid off within the next year. That's been a pick of mine that has worked very well. There's a couple of other companies I recently that I interviewed uh, at investmentpitch.com. Bravada Gold Corp is another one trades Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol BVA. Uh, this is a company that has some 938,000 ounces uh, in the 43101 resource sector at Wind Mountain, Nevada. It was a former producer with huge, lots and lots of ex- exploration potential there. I love that one a lot. Majescore Resources I interviewed as well. You can watch it at investmentpitch.com. They are in Haiti. It's one of Chen Lin's favorite stocks. Uh, it's one that I own as well, uh, one that I like a lot. Uh, it's 27.5 cents, 61 million shares major copper and gold exploration potential in Haiti, and they're located down there next to uh, Eurasia and the Newmont Mining Project. Lots of lots of basic wealth potential in Haiti, and that country needs it uh, almost as much as any country in the world. And there's good uh, reason to believe that with Newmont there working with the government, they may be able to get some good mining laws in place that will allow these projects to go forward. So those are companies that I interviewed up in Vancouver. And again, you can watch and watch those interviews at investmentpitch.com to learn more about them. I should mention, for the sake of full disclosure, uh, that I do own StarCore and Majescore, and all three of those companies are recommendations in my newsletter. So uh, we hope that you'll go to investmentpitch.com. Also, of course, we hope that you'll subscribe to my newsletter, pick up uh, Mexico Mike's ideas, my ideas, Chen Lin's ideas, and Roger Wiegand's ideas, all uh, some of which are passed along in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, next week, we're really fortunate to have a couple of our favorite guests on this show. Rick Rule and Doug Casey will be on with us together. Rick Rule will be talking to us from his home uh, in New Zealand, and Doug Casey, I believe, will be in Argentina. But thanks to modern technology, we'll be able to hook up all three of us and have a wonderful discussion. And by the way, send in questions. You're always free to do that. Send in questions um, to, to this show, and we will try to pass them on. Well, that is all the time that we have for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and my engineer, Justin Jackman, for making this show logistically possible. And again, thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.